podcast for people who really fancy a good story. I'm Emily. And I'm Rebecca. And today we have got a very special feature for you all. You might remember that last season we did our five all-time favourite albums. So this season we've come back with our favourite films. And given that we're both ex-film students <laughs> and all we do is read books and watch films, this yeah. was not an easy task. It was just as hard as the albums one. And just before we get started, be warned that there may be spoilers for any of the films that we mention. So if you don't want them spoiled, pause, fast forward, yeah, bail. <laughs> <laughs> so Emily, do you want to start us off with how you approached this task? Sure. So the way I approached it was I listed out all the films I think of when I think favourite film. And then I went through it and asked myself, one, what films have I seen like a million times? Mm. And two, what ones do I like because they have something special about them that I can like point to and be like, oh, that's why I like that one. Because mm-hmm. I needed to write an episode that actually sounded good for yeah. starters. So yeah, obviously you just said it, but like we were film students, I think I did five years of film, I think, because yeah. I did it in my master's as well, so you were probably roughly the I same. Think, yeah, I think I did four. Um, yeah, so that, like I, one of my favourite hobbies is going to the cinema, and I do love analysing films as much as I like analysing books. I have a lot of favourites, but these are five that I've watched countless times, and that I feel have either like moulded my personality or like just reflect my personality quite well. Nice. That was how I decided to do it. So I think I've probably been quite similar. I don't think that I was as methodical or um, (laughs) intentional about it but that would add up for our two personalities. I just kind of went what are my five favourite films and five came quite quickly to me and then I listed out loads more to make sure I wasn't missing any. Mm -hmm. I came back to the original five and I found when I then looked at those in depth that those things that you've just mentioned came out. Either yeah. I've watched them a million times or they've moulded my personality or they reflect my personality. Yeah. I think I actually I came up with four really quickly mm-hmm. that it was like fill in that last gap took a while. Yeah, to be fair, my first three came to me instantly mm. and then the last two I was like, oh, <laughs> what way do I go? <laughs> but, right, let's just jump in. Okay. Without further ado... What's your first favourite? My first favourite is Donnie Darko. Obviously. <laughs> so this is a 2001 film directed by Richard Kelly and it stars Jake Gyllenhaal as Donnie Darko. Jenna Malone is his love interest, Gretchen Ross. And you've got Drew Barrymore as his English teacher, Patrick Swayze as this motivational coach with like a hidden secret. And there's a few not famous yet cameos uh, which I think are quite funny from actors like Seth Rogen and Ashley Tisdale and Maggie Gyllenhaal, Jake's real life sister obviously, plays his on screen sister Elizabeth Darko which I just think is cute. That is cute. So this film's a tricky <laughs> to describe <laughs> not least because it took me multiple viewings to actually understand it and there are still things that I debate in my head like about what they really mean. <laughs> But essentially, this is a film about a teenage boy, Donnie Darko. One night, he sleepwalks and comes across this person dressed in a giant bunny suit with a very disturbing mask. It's like melted metal. Yeah, it's Um, terrifying. Yeah, uh, this bunny is called Frank 
and Frank tells Donnie that the world is going to end in 28 days, 6 hours, 42 minutes and 12 seconds. And then that night, a jet engine <laughs> comes crashing through the Darko's roof into Donnie's room. So if he hadn't been sleepwalking, he would have died. I don't want to go into too much detail about the plot. Like, I know we are doing spoilers, but honestly, I think it will take too long to describe this film. Yeah, it um, So I'm not really going to tell you much of what happens since so most of it will still be a surprise. But essentially, Frank helps Donnie get away with some stuff that has knock-on effects that help Donnie save the world. Um, and as this is happening, Donnie's reading a book by Roberta Sparrow called The Philosophy of Time Travel. And he's learning about that. He's going to therapy. He's taking medication. It's not specifically mentioned what he's been diagnosed with, but his therapist talks about like voices and imaginary friends. So it does suggest like some kind of psychosis or maybe schizophrenia. And as well, he's fallen for Gretchen Ross, who's the new girl at school who has a troubled past. So basically you have this like mad film about time travel, a man in a bunny suit, <laughs> violence, a bit of romance, maybe it's all in his head because he's been treated for something uh, and it all culminates on Halloween, which I obviously love about it. Yeah, um, it's the most you film. <laughs> so yeah, I'm well aware like none of that makes much sense without me telling you the end of the film, but yeah, I'm uh, like I said, I'm not going to do it because I'd have to explain too much. So please just go watch it. And controversially, perhaps I prefer the theatrical cut to the director's cut. I think the music's better. <laughs> uh, but I have seen both a, lo- a lot of times. And yeah, there's so much I love about this film that I know I could spend forever on it. So what I tried to do, this is kind of how I tried to approach the whole episode, is I've just kind of listed stuff I like. Okay. So I'm just going to fire that at you. I'm excited. <laughs> so, I love when you do a fast pace. <laughs> so one is that a lot of the characters in the high school have alliterative names. So Donnie Darko, obviously. You've got Charita Chen, Joni James, Sean Smith. It's just like a nice subtle way to nod that this is kind of a superhero film because mm. Donnie's trying to be a hero. So like the names feed into that like comic book trope, which I just enjoy. One of my favourite scenes is between Donnie and his English teacher, Drew Barrymore. She's been fired because the PTA thinks that she's teaching the students pornographic texts and that the literature she's teaching will influence them. But I love this because what she teaches does influence Donnie. She has, in this scene, she has two words written on her chalkboard, which are cellar door, and Donnie asks why. And she explains that out of all the combinations of all the words in the English language, these like linguists decided that cellar door is the most beautiful. And that's kind of the scene. Like you're not given any indication that it's important. <laughs> but then much later in the film, Donnie sees a cellar door and decides that he has to go through it. And like you're meant to assume that he wouldn't have done that if his teacher hadn't had that conversation with him. I love that scene. I don't remember much (laughs) from the film but I remember that scene. Yeah. So kind of on that note, I love how the cast of characters surrounding Donnie all help him towards this goal and it's not really done in a way that you would notice it, I don't think, but it's there. So for example you've got that scene there, the, the cellar door line, which leads him to a cellar door later and you've got Frank who tees a lot of 
shots up for him too. Um, for example, one of the first things he tells him to do is to flood the school. So Donnie does, and school is cancelled, and as everyone is leaving, he bumps into Gretchen, who asks him to walk her home. And that conversation, which only happened because they had that time to walk together, leads them to dating. Mm. So there's lots of like domino effect moments like it in the film. And I think you get the sense on watching it a few times that many of the characters are desperate for Donnie to save them. You get the sense that they've been stuck in a loop for a long while now and that it will only take Donnie working out how to break that loop to save them. <gasps> I never noticed that, but you're so right. Yeah. That's why it's clever, because I would never notice that in like the first like five times I watched it. <laughs> but yeah. Um, it's like that... Um... That other film that we watched that was much happier. Um, oh, The Map of Tiny Perfect Things. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, carry yeah. on. <laughs> the, my, my last point and the reason that I really love it is that none of that is explained. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a film that I'm sure lots of people don't like because it doesn't like to explain itself and it is quite confusing. And I understand that like not everyone needs a film to be quote-unquote clever to enjoy it because I certainly don't a mm. lot of the time. But that is why I like Donnie Darko in particular. And also just the vibes are great in Jake Gyllenhaal. <laughs> in conclusion, Jake Gyllenhaal. <laughs> and, and that's that. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, I know I didn't really explain much of the plot, but I mean, you've seen it. Yeah. It's, it's too hard to... It is too hard to just, explain. Just watch it. Believe me, it's good. The thing <laughs> is, it wouldn't matter, because even like when you watch it, you won't understand the plot. Yeah, yeah. So it wouldn't matter if you explained it. Yeah, now, exactly. Because like it doesn't impact the watching experience at all, mm-hmm. <laughs> whether or not you understand the plot. It's yeah. just cool. Yeah, there are a bunch of like YouTube like breakdowns on what the film is if you like really want to watch stuff like that. But I would recommend watching it first. Yeah, without all that. Nice one. <laughs> What's your first one then? Okay, so I need to preface this because I feel like a lot of people that know me in real life would be like Rebecca's favourite film is Mamma Mia. Um, and so I have to say, it is a large part of my personality, but that's more of a comfort film. Mm. I'm not going to talk about it today. My favourite film is La La Land. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously. So La La Land, for anyone who has missed it, is a movie musical directed by Damien Chazelle. It stars Emma Stone as Mia, who's an aspiring actress, and Ryan Gosling as Sebastian, who is a jazz pianist who dreams of opening his own club. They both live in modern-day Los Angeles, and they fall in love both with one another, but also with one another's occupations. And a lot of the film spends time making the viewer fall in love with their occupations as well, which is kind of why I love it so much. Mm. It's a total like love letter to Hollywood and performance, and it's... Like, I think you get that from the title because it's, like, half a joke and half affectionate, right? Yeah. It's like La La Land. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I have a lot to say about this film because I love everything about it. <laughs> I, again, I'm going to fire things now. Yeah. I love the costumes. Yeah. I love the music. I love that the tone of the film is half really reverent of, like, old Hollywood and half really viciously critical and sardonic mm-hmm. about it. I love that it's a story about two characters who are torn between like their relationship and their love for their art because who doesn't love a struggling <laughs> artist yeah. romance story? Yeah. But my favourite part of this film is just the visuals. 
Mm-hmm. It's completely, you've seen it, it's completely oversaturated, yeah. hyper-stylized, ridiculous. And when I first saw it, I feel like I've watched so many actual old Hollywood films that are really rich, but I hadn't seen any made now that were this rich. And I feel mm-hmm. like it like unlocked a little door in my brain about like the rules of aesthetics or something. Yeah, you're right, because even musicals these days don't look like that. They don't, yeah, and it just sort of, like, just seen even the way that the saturation of all the colours is turned all the way up, like mm-hmm. Technicolor, it yeah. just... I was like, oh, you're you're allowed to do whatever you want. <laughs> like, that's yeah. so cool. It's managed to completely preserve old Hollywood glamour in the modern setting. I think moments like Mia's emerald green dress that mm. she wears in the planetarium scene... Or even Sebastian's car. He's got this like vintage Buick Riviera car. Or the iconic poster lamppost. Mm-hmm. Um, with the vista over the city. Like all of that. The visuals are just so like lovely. Yeah. <laughs> They're just so lovely. And as well as paying homage to the movie business. Which obviously the film is. It also goes further back into Hollywood history. Because it has Tracy's vaudeville. Which mm-hmm. I find really fun. Um, one of my favourite kind of moments is Mia tells Sebastian that her aunt, who got her into acting, used to be part of a travelling theatre company back in the days of vaudeville and life theatre. And we see in the planetarium scene, which is like one of the most magical moments of the film, so backstory, <laughs> on their first date, Mia and Sebastian go to the movies, but just as they and the characters on screen are about to kiss, the projector fails, which I love. <laughs> so they abandon the cinema they sneak into the Griffith Observatory, which is the most romantic shit ever, and in the planetarium, they begin to ballroom dance, and then as the music soars, <laughs> they start to fly <laughs> among all the fake stars, which is amazing. Yeah. Because um, it should be lame, but it's not. Yeah. It should be so stupid. Because they've just totally lent into the vibe and aesthetic of, like this is a musical and yeah. it's fantasy and like when you're singing it's anything can happen yeah yeah but like it's like that moment at the end of Greece where the car starts flying and you're yeah. like this is so stupid but I love it yeah anyway in that scene I feel like they look like little puppets yeah which is yeah which is a nice little vaudeville moment and another nice kind of callback to that is in the end sequence of the film which I won't go into too much detail about, but you basically run back through the whole movie at mega speed. Mm-hmm. And there is a scene which is called the audition scene. Mia has done an audition in front of some casting directors where she sings a song about her theatrical auntie. And in this end sequence, that's replayed as little delicate paper shadow puppets. Yeah. So I just love the little tips of the hat to Hollywood history, mm-hmm. and I've just I've never seen anything like that done um, yeah. in my lifetime. So yeah, another thing that I wanted to point out about this movie though is the genius way that it approaches the idea of a musical. So I I had to ask Emily questions about this last night because <laughs> I couldn't remember my film studies terms, but I got there. So to explain a little bit about film terms. I want to introduce the terms diegetic and non-diegetic music. Mm-hmm. So diegetic music in a film or a play is music which the character can hear. So for example, if the radio is playing or someone's humming a tune, the other characters can hear it. But non-diegetic music is like background music in a film or a play. It exists outside the universe of the film. It only really serves to heighten the emotion for the audience. 
Interestingly, though, in musicals, the musical numbers, even though they're being sung by the characters, are usually non-diegetic. Their singing isn't part of the story. It exists outside the rules of the world. Mm-hmm. So it's non-diegetic. In La La Land, the first half is full of classic non-diegetic musical numbers. The songs are all just exposition of character and plot. They're not part of the plot. But then something really interesting happens after the midpoint of the film. This is a musical about performers, and part of the plot is that Sebastian sells out a bit to become part of a famous band instead of staying true to his art. After he does that, the big Hollywood musical stops and the songs all become diegetic. So it's all songs that either he's performing on stage with his band or he's practicing at home with Mia or the song that Mia's singing as part of her acting roles. So that like happy, rosy musical tone of the first act is replaced by a drama in which there is music. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a cool shift, both in terms of like storytelling and tone, mm-hmm. but I also think it's a cool way that they've highlighted the difference between golden age Hollywood and modern Hollywood mm-hmm. and the fact that they're like marrying it up. Yeah, it's almost like they've been like, oh, this is what musicals used to be and this is what they can be now. Yeah. But like they're still celebrating what they used to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, but it's also like, I feel like it's kind of mourning what they've become in a way because mm. the second half is a lot it's, sadder. And it's sadder, yeah, yeah. So it's sort sense. of like, yeah. I don't know. It is, it is a real like callback to old Hollywood. I think, which I think is fun. Yeah, I could go on and on, but I thought I'd just have to stop myself eventually, <laughs> and I'd just share my favorite like lines from yes, the film. Yeah which is from the audition song that Mia sings about her aunt. So I think that for anyone that's not seen the film, if you want an idea of its kind of ethos, (laughs) these are good lines. So she says, She captured a feeling, the sky with no ceiling, the sunset inside a frame. And she lived in her liquor and died with a flicker. I'll always remember the flame. So here's to the ones who dream, foolish as they may seem. Here's to the hearts that ache. Here's to the mess we make. And then she goes on, which I think this is just, oh, so nice. She told me a bit of madness is key to give us new colours to see. Who knows where it will lead us? And that's why they need us. So bring on the rebels, the ripples from pebbles, the painters and poets and plays. And here's to the fools who dream. Oh. I love it too. It's so beautiful. Yeah. The songwriters who did La La Land also did The Greatest Showman for people who are interested because The Greatest Showman has really good songs as well. Yeah, it does have really good songs. (laughs) And that song, actually, I remember, I can't even, I can't remember the podcast name and I'll have to find it out, but I listened to like a behind the scenes podcast of the like recording of that song. Mm. And if anyone has seen it, you'll know like at the start, she's kind of speaking the lyrics Mm -hmm. over the piano and then it swells into like the full belt that mm-hmm. she does, but the, that so that was live, piano played alongside her, mm. and the pianist was matching how she was singing it, ah. so she set the tone for like acting the scene. That's and, interesting. And it was just like done in one take. Yeah, which I think is pretty amazing. That's quite like fitting, isn't it, for that part of the film because it is like she's setting. Her own tone yeah like what she's gonna do with the rest of her life i know i love that oh and also me and emily went to see this with a live orchestra mm. and it was the best yeah really recommend doing that it was 
beautiful if they ever do it again I yeah mean, if they ever it. if they ever tour it with a live orchestra again you gotta go yeah <laughs> anyway go on to your second one my second one is tim burton's corpse bride oh good one <laughs> this is tim burton's wonderful 2005 stop-motion animated film the screenplay was written by john august caroline thompson and pamela petler but the characters were invented by tim burton um, and he did produce and direct it. And it's loosely inspired by a 19th century Russian folktale. But this film is set in an like, unnamed Victorian English town mm. instead. So the plot is Victor Van Dort, played by Johnny Depp, and Victoria Everglot, played by Emily Watson, are preparing for their arranged marriage. Both are really apprehensive about it, but as soon as they meet, it is love at first sight. However, Victor is really nervous and keeps messing up at, at the rehearsal, so he's sent out of the house to learn his vows, and he paces in nearby woods and eventually, like very spectacularly, says his vows and places Victoria's wedding ring on a nearby branch. But it was not a branch, it was a skeleton's outstretched hand, and so a corpse bride, played by Helena Bonham Carter, rises out of the ground and says, I do. <laughs> it's so good <laughs> so we then have this brilliant journey through the land of the dead where we learn more about the bride's past her name is emily and victor's struggle as he tries to get back at the land of the living to marry victoria while also growing more empathetic towards emily and wondering if the right thing to do is to stay married with her i adore this film because it is a family film, like it's really funny, it has really amazing musical numbers, but it's also just really macabre mm-hmm. and explores like death and marriage and murder. <laughs> and as with all the gothic texts that have come before it, the real villain of the film is not the like dead bodies. <laughs> it's actually a very like mysterious and charming man who likes to marry women for their inheritance and then off them. And again, because this is just the structure I've gone for this episode, I'm just going to list off things I like. Nice. So, one of my favourite scenes is early on when Victor and Victoria first meet. They're both really nervous about meeting, like I said, and Victor takes a moment of quiet to play the grand piano in the Everglots foyer. And he plays this beautiful song, which is just called Victor's Piano Solo. And when Victoria hears this music, that's when she comes downstairs to see her future husband and she makes him jump because he thought he was alone and they like share their like awkward but adorable introductions i also wanted to note at this point that i own the songbook for this film because my intention when i was a teenager was basically to just learn this entire film score Mm. on piano but i fell at the first hurdle which is this song because my hands are too small to play it (laughs) oh so yeah i can't reach the chords of my left hand so I can only play the melody on my right hand but even then it's like it's really hard I can't like I'm, I can't get the time in right because my hands are too small just thought I'd throw that information in there. fun fact <laughs> fun fact so yeah another thing I like is that later in the film he plays this piano piece again um sorry if you can hear the radiator creaking it kind of goes with the whole corpse bride vibe. It does. The big banging Victorian <laughs> It does. So yeah, he plays this piano piece again, but it's actually with Emily. 
she's playing a piece on her piano called Tears to Shed, which is a song that she'd sung previously where she grieves over the fact that he'll want to pick Victoria over her because Victoria's living and so she, Emily, has nothing to offer him. And Victor sits down to reconcile with her and starts playing her song back to her. Mm. He then starts playing Victor's piano solo. So you have this beautiful moment where these two pieces of music like blend into one. Yeah. And like without any words, you understand that he's like giving himself to her. And yet it's all told through the piano duet, which is the name of the piece, which I just love. It is really, really beautiful. It's really sweet. That's one of my favourite scenes as well. Here's a short one. Emily's wedding gift to Victor is a skeleton dog called Scraps, who is actually his real life dog that, in the past. That almost made me cry. <laughs> it's so sweet. Yeah, so I love the aesthetic of this film, which I know is not great to say on a podcast, um, but just believe me, it's very pretty. You also have this added detail of like the land of the living being very muted. There's a lot of grey and blue, and it almost looks like, I describe it as like a cold kind of sepia, mm. if that makes sense. But the land of the dead is super saturated with colour. If anyone has any flesh left on their bones, it's blue. And there's just all these like vibrant clothes and surroundings. There's a really like lively, pun intended, jazz club that's mm. like all neon. You can kind of see a sort of like Day of the Dead influence. Yeah, in the land of the dead. Yeah, like yeah. not not entirely because it's very still British. Yeah, but it's it's got like the color mm-hmm. that I would associate with that. Yeah, yeah, I like that the moth you see at the very beginning of the film, which is introduced in the opening credits as Victor draws it mm. and then releases it, comes back at the end of the film. So the film ends with Emily dissipating into moths as she states that Victor has freed her. So she turns into all these moths that look exactly like the one that earlier in the film he had in a glass jar and then released. Oh. Because we love a visual metaphor. <laughs> That's a nice visual metaphor. Yeah. he always lets delicate things go. He does. Love him. And yeah, lastly, I thought I would just read out the wedding vows from the film because I really like them. They're so good. Please go on. (laughs) So they are. With this hand, I will lift your sorrows. Your cup will never empty, for I will be your wine. With this candle, I will light your way in darkness. And with this ring, I ask you to be mine. I do. It's <laughs> so sweet. It is so sweet. So yeah, that's Tim Burton's Corpse Bride. It's probably the one I've seen the most out of all the films I'm talking about today. Because I can just watch it on repeat. <laughs> Especially at this time of year, because it's like... It is kind of Halloween-y, but I think of it as more of like a wintery. Because it's set in winter, it's very mm. snowy. Yeah, so, it is quite snowy. Yeah, I just, I just love it. <laughs> I think that I'm not going to talk about this today, but I think that your corpse bride is my Edward Scissorhands. Yes, which I do also love. Yeah. But, yes. Nice. (laughs) What's your second one? It is, again, will be no surprise to you, Greta Gerwig's Little Women. Mm -hmm. Obviously this came out in, what, 2019? Mm -hmm. Or we saw it then, anyway. That was the year I saw it. So it must have been late 2018 yeah. early 2019 I think it did it not come out on like Christmas day or something yeah maybe late 2018 but yeah anyway recently ish <laughs> um but it just became a firm favorite for me straight mm-hmm. away the first time I saw it it's so cozy 
Yeah. It is like Gilmore Girls on crack. <laughs> so, yeah, again, I love loads about this film. I think the costumes are beautiful, once again. The period kind of costumes are just so yeah. fun. Um, and we've talked about before how the characters all kind of have their signature colours yeah, and things like that. that, which is so fun. And talking of colour, I love the way that this film, kind of like Corpse Bride, uses colour tones to signal past and present. Mm-hmm. So in it, all of the flashback scenes to the March sisters growing up in their little cute house have this really warm, glowy orange filter and it makes it feel really nostalgic. Mm-hmm. And then the present tense scenes where they're older have this blue overtone that makes them feel quite cold and realistic. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, if you know the story of Little Women, because it's from Louisa May Alcott's novel, there is a tragedy at the centre of it, so that makes total sense to mm-hmm. have those different tones. Saoirse Ronan and your man Timothy Chalamet <laughs> are just wonderful as Joe and Laurie. Yeah. And Florence Pugh is obviously amazing as Amy. Oh, I love her in this film so much. Like, she's just such a perfect Amy. Yeah. So spoiled. <laughs> but so strong. Yeah. <laughs> but obviously, as a book adaptation, a lot of the best parts of this film are in the dialogue and the writing. And it's got some really beautiful lines. So rather than describe the whole film, I thought I'd just share some of my favourite lines from it. Yeah. So first of all, there's some really choice ones from Joe, our main character, our heroine, about writing. So for anyone that's not familiar with the plot, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but it's about four sisters, Meg, Joe, Amy and Beth. And they grow up in middle America. I don't even know where about. Is it like... Is it not kind of New Englandy? In New Englandy, something like that. I don't know. I've not um, read it in a long time. During the Civil War, anyway. Mm-hmm. And they are brought up to be very like good girls, like very pious. They're like their family wants them to be good. Their family is good. <laughs> and across the way, there is a big mansion with this old man whose nephew comes to live with them, or grandson, Laurie. Grandson, I think. Grandson. And Laurie is a rogue. Um, (laughs) And he befriends the girls and they go on many adventures. But Jo is a writer and she writes the book Little Women. My favourite line from Jo is, if I'm going to sell my heroine into marriage for money, I might as well get some of it. When she's talking to her editor. She also says, writing doesn't confer importance, it reflects it. Mm. Which I think is like, you could write an entire dissertation on whether that's true. Yes. Does writing confer importance or does it reflect it? Mm. I don't know. I love her line when her little sister Beth says, she says something like, if God wills it, and Joe says, yeah, well, God hasn't met my will yet. (laughs) (laughs) I feel that strongly in my soul. (laughs) Yeah. And there's also some really interesting discussions around marriage in this film. Marriage is kind of the main plot of the film, if you want to give it a plot. For Meg, the eldest sister, she falls in love with a poor man, And so her marriage is looked down upon by her elder relatives, but also by her younger sister Jo, for different reasons. The adults think Meg should marry a more eligible man, but Jo doesn't think she should marry at all because she's too talented to be a wife. Mm. And one really beautiful line that Meg says is, just because my dreams are different from yours doesn't mean they're unimportant. I love that line. So do I. (laughs) It was in the trailer and I remember being like, I need to see this film because that's a beautiful line. And then she she does, she goes and marries her poor man. And I think that's such a dignified, like, positive representation of the housewife, Mm -hmm. which is a role that's often scorned in period feminist literature. 
Mm-hmm. So I think that's just a good move on Gerwig's part to like mm-hmm. reframe Meg marrying as Meg having agency. Yeah. And I also like that they show that they do struggle because mm-hmm. he's poor, like they do struggle. They have struggles, but like she stays with him because she loves him and yeah. that was why she wanted to get married. Exactly. So, yeah. She wanted to marry for love. And then on the other end of the spectrum is the youngest sister, Amy, um, played by Florence Pugh. And Amy's a really interesting one because she is vain and she is spoiled. And you get that from when she's like the flashbacks from when she's a little kid. <laughs> but she also feels this enormous sense of duty as the youngest sister to marry well because she knows that her oldest sisters haven't Mm-hmm. Or won't in the case of Joe. Yeah. So there's this really highly charged scene between her and Laurie, who kind of accuses her of gold digging, I suppose, or like selling out in a way. Yeah, k- kind of. Yeah. Like that's. I think that's the easiest way to explain yeah. it. He kind of like looks down on her a little bit for seeing marriage as an economic. Yeah, he almost has the same opinion as Joe, where it's like. Because cause Amy's an artist, he's almost sort of like, you should do the art instead of, of the, the marriage. marriage. So it's it's kind of similar to that Joe and uh, Meg. Meg scene. But her retort is just amazing, so yeah. I'm just going to read the whole bit. Oh, yes. So Amy says, I believe we have some power over who we love. It isn't just something that happens to a person. And Laurie says, I think the poets might disagree. <laughs> Amy says, well, I'm not a poet, I'm just a woman. And as a woman, I have no way to make money. Not enough to earn a living and support my family. Even if I had my own money, which I don't, it would belong to my husband the minute we were married. And if we had children, they would belong to him, not me. They would be his property. So don't sit there and tell me that marriage isn't an economic proposition, because it is. It may not be for you, but it most certainly is for me. Yes. Yes, Amy. (laughs) And I just think that that the way that it's delivered in the film is so calm Mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, yeah. She's not even raging. She just looks so done. Yeah. And finally, we have Jo. My (laughs) beloved Jo, who rails against marriage completely because she's convinced it'll restrict her liberty. And in a lot of ways, as Amy's pointed out, she is right. She says, I'd rather be a lonely spinster and paddle my own canoe. But the brilliant thing about Jo, particularly in this adaptation... In the original text too, but particularly in this, is that in rejecting marriage, she realises that she also rejects love, and she really grapples with that. Mm. And there's that famous scene near the end of the movie, the I just think women (laughs) scene, where she kind of breaks down and has this realisation. So I will read out her little monologue. She says, I just think that women, women, they have minds and they have souls as well as hearts. And they've got ambition and they've got talent as well as just beauty. And I'm so sick of people saying that love is just all that a woman is fit for. I'm so sick of it. But I'm so lonely. Um. And I think a lot of people, when I see like edits of this scene, people pick out that monologue, that the angry bit, where she says, I'm so sick of people saying that love is all a woman is fit for, I'm so sick of it. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people miss out the bit where she then adds, but I'm so lonely. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's really missing the point of Jo's character. Yeah, exactly. The point of the scene as well. The point of the scene is that she's got all this rage, but a lot of Jo's character development is realising that rage doesn't get her anywhere. Mm -hmm. It doesn't get her what she wants. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it it makes me really sad, but it just makes me happy to see so many different representations of women 
like having agency in their own ways I guess Mm -hmm. in a time where obviously women didn't yeah and it's a film about writing and it's a film about stories and it's a film about family and it's just really sweet also it's the only U rated film that I have seen as an adult and not noticed that it's a U rated film I couldn't have told you it was U rated but yeah that makes sense I I realised that when I was looking it up for this it's like it's not even PG it's completely U and it's just perfect yeah it's so mature and wholesome I do love that one as well yeah (sighs) anyway (laughs) you need to go on to your third one because now I'm getting emotional (laughs) my third one is Baby Driver oh nice so this is Edgar Wright's 2017 film which is mad to me because that sounds like a long time ago (laughs) Yeah, it feels like a long time ago though. Yeah. Like that's a very uni film. To I know. Me. Before I begin, <laughs> I would like to offer a disclaimer, which is that we are a Kevin Spacey hating household. Yeah. We do not support him. Also, there's been a few like rumblings about Ansel Elgort, and apparently Lily James is really difficult to work with. I've Aww. been hearing that recently. So, long story short, I know all of this. Don't like any of this, but I really love this film, <laughs> and I think it's a masterpiece. So. Suck it up. Yeah. So Baby Driver. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is a film about a getaway driver called Baby, played by Ansel Elgort, who wants to leave his life of crime when he meets and falls for Deborah, played by Lily James. That's the plot. Mm. There's obviously like a colourful cast of criminals uh, headed by Doc, who's Kevin Spacey, the best of which are Bats, Buddy and Darling body is played by John Hamm, which I think more than makes up for Kevin Spacey being in this <laughs> John Hamm <laughs> makes everything better. Yeah. And of course, the brilliant detail of this film is that Baby was in a car crash when he was a child and has suffered from tinnitus ever since, so he often drowns that out with music. I'll come back to that in a moment. So, Edgar Wright, I love him. He has written and directed the Cornetto trilogy, so Shaun and the Dead, Hot Fuzz and The World's End. And if you've seen any of those films, you'll know his directorial style, which is that he often matches action to music. Mm-hmm. So a good example of this is in Shaun and the Dead, when the group fight off a zombie to diegetic music, Don't Stop Me Now by Queen, and their weapons are like hitting the zombie to the beat of the music, mm-hmm. which is funny but also has the effect of like bringing a certain kind of energy to the scene. In Baby Driver, Edgar Wright went kind of like ham <laughs> with this idea in like the best way. The entire script was written to music, the music which did end up in the film. So every beat of the story or action matches the beat of the music. And what he's done is essentially make an action film that is a musical. But instead of the character singing it, you're getting the music through diegetic music, through like headphones or like a car stereo system. Yeah, like you guys know that I often correlate music with story, mm-hmm. whether it's like something I'm writing or something I'm reading. So I just find it so cool that this technique actually works. <laughs> it's the way that it's like done on screen as well. It's so fluid. Like yeah. all the movements, all the yeah. door opening, all the... Yeah camera work to turn around a corner Mm -hmm. like so pleasing yeah 100 percent so i thought a good example of like explaining this is the opening credit scene it's baby walking to get coffee and on his walk he's listening to the harlem shuffle and on his way the lyrics from the song show up in his surroundings 
so like in graffiti, street signs, like that kind of thing. There's also sounds that match up, so like the keypad of an ATM machine beeping in time, drilling, car horns, and there's like buskers playing actual instruments that like match up with what the song is. There's one point where Baby is lined up with a trumpet in a music shop window display mm. when there's like a trumpet solo in the song. There's just so much detail packed into this one scene, which is obviously the length of the song. And there's another detail I also love in this scene, which is that he walks past a painted mural with a black heart as he goes into the coffee shop. And when he's in there, he spots Deborah walking past outside. And as she walks past, you see the heart has changed to red. Oh, it's just such a cute little detail. So I actually kind of have less to say about this film than like the other films, apart from the entire film is like that. <laughs> uh, even the action, like the car chase scenes are perfectly matched to music, which must have been so difficult to do, like matching stunt driving to music. Yeah, that's like choreography plus plus. Yeah, like you even have Baby stalling on driving away because he wants to restart the song he was listening to so he can do everything on beat like oh, <laughs> oh I, I remember it. that that was good one detail i did like and wanted to point out is that baby and deborah bond over songs that have their names in them so she points out that there aren't many deborah songs but he's hit the jackpot because his name is in countless songs she says well then, you have us all beat. Every damn song is about you. We could drive back and forth across the states forever and never run out of baby songs. <laughs> so yeah, I know that was quite short, but this is just a film of a young man who wants nothing but to be with the girl he loves on the opening road, listening to music. It's about someone who isn't entirely blameless in this life of crime, but like who is good and who wants out. And I just love it. The actual, like, sort of heisty stuff is actually just a really good plot as well. So, yeah, I just love it. It's such a, like, treat to watch. And I really recommend watching it. Is Disco 2000 in that film? The Pulp song? Because it has a Deborah in it. No. It's Deborah by T Rex and another one. I can't remember. It's, like, the song titles. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. I was just thinking because that's the only song that I know that has, like, as Ellen, it's like her name was Deborah. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't think so. But there you go. She's got another. Song. She's got another song. <laughs> that fictional character can add that to her playlist. <laughs> what is your third? Third. Are we on third. Yes. Yeah. What's your third one? So this one is my childhood favorite. Okay. Because I couldn't not include it. I've seen this film more times than any other film, ever. <laughs> it's The Lion King. Yeah, I thought I thought you were gonna have. That. Yeah, it's like it's in my DNA. I've absorbed every single frame of this film. Yeah. Again, I think I didn't realise until I was writing this episode how much like visually beautiful films are my favourite. Mm-hmm. But it is visually beautiful. I think it's one of the most gorgeous animated films mm-hmm. in Western media, at least. Yeah. Um the watercolour backgrounds in this film, like that era of Disney mm-hmm. of like Mulan, The Little Mermaid, mm-hmm. The Lion King, with the watercolour backgrounds the way that the fire and rain and wind and stars are all animated in this film yeah. is so beautiful because it's like, it almost looks photorealistic mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. against this really painterly background. Yeah. I think it's a timeless looking film. The soundtrack to Lion King, 
is amazing. <laughs> I will not hear any word against it. <laughs> the bit where Simba is running back to the Pride Lands to reclaim his rightful place as king and the drums are beaten as he runs and it's so dramatic mm-hmm. and urgent, it gives me goosebumps. Yeah, yeah. Like, I just think it's amazing. But I also love the way that this film makes use of theatrical tropes, um, like the comic relief in the forms of Timon and Pumbaa, You've got the Greek chorus in the form of Rafiki, who creates exposition. So I think that for a lot of people, this is like a really great, for like our generation that grew up with this film, I think it's a really great example of how to tell a story in like a traditional way. Yeah, Um, but it's Shakespeare. Yeah, exactly. It's (laughs) Shakespeare adaptation. But I also think that this film, for a lot of kids, was probably the first time that you ever saw death on screen. Yeah, probably for a lot of people, yeah. And I think that it's handled really well because unlike a lot of other Disney films where, you know, they're off the parents, the <laughs> death isn't just to move the plot along. You fully bond with the Mufasa character before his death. Mm-hmm. Like, he's there for a while mm-hmm. at the start. So you kind of feel the grief along with Simba and the scene where he's trying to wake him up is just too much. Yeah, it's traumatic. <laughs> yeah. But I feel like that grief is actually a major driver that comes back all the way through the film. It's what drives all of Simba's actions. Mm-hmm. Plus you have the whole circle of life motif. So I think that something that I love about this film in like an emotional sense is that it's really helpful to allow kids to see death as something that is inevitable but not necessarily something to be feared. Mm-hmm. And it actually shows, like obviously it's a dead animated lion and not a dead person, but you see his face. Like, that's quite a lot to do. So yeah, I think it teaches us a lot about loss and the way that you can keep someone alive through your memory of them, but also through your actions, because that's legacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, animated lions shouldn't really be able to teach children that much, <laughs> but basically I think I'd be a very different person without this film, so I wanted to give it its rightful place. Mm-hmm. Also, Nala is a sassy legend. Yes. And equally was important in the development of my personality. <laughs> As yeah. a sassy legend. Also Simba's voice by Matthew Roderick, who just has the best voice. Yeah. Like, I love Simba's voice so much. It's so soothing, I think. <laughs> like, I would just trust it. Yeah. I would just trust it. And I love, I also love that you see, this is not in my notes, but the bit where Nala goes to get him, and it's like, they have an actual argument. Mm. Like, an actual raging argument where she's <laughs> calling him out on his bullshit. Mm-hmm. And, like, she gets very personal about it. Like, I think there's a bit he says you're beginning to sound like my father and she's like, well, good, at least one of us does. Okay. You're like, oh, (laughs) the shade on this woman. But it's like a proper lover's quarrel. Yeah. But then they work it out because they're best friends and they love each other. Yeah. So, you know, just good dynamics all around except for the murderous uncle. Mm. But, but the campiest villain. The best and campiest villain in the form of Scar. The only maybe effy bit, the only bit of The Lion King that now that I'm older, I'm like, mm, is that the hyena march looks like a Nazi? Um, <laughs> yeah, it does actually. Nazi march. <laughs> and I'm just like, did we, did we need go that far? But you know what? It's visually effective, and yeah. um, it was probably easiest for the programmers. So yeah, yeah, true. So true. I'll let them. <laughs> What's your fourth? My fourth one is about time. Oh, I was going to put this in, but I thought you might, so I'm glad I didn't. So this is a 2013 film 
written and directed by Richard Curtis, who is just the king of romantic comedy dramas. Yes, he truly is. Like, you have his classics, like Notting Hill, Bridget Jones's Diary, obviously Love Actually, Mm. but my favourite film of his, and again one I can watch over and over, is About Time. Because I like a romance as much as anyone, but I think we all know what I love more is magical realism. And in this film, I get both. So You love a time travel narrative as well. I do. I noticed the theme when I was writing this episode. So yeah, About Time is narrated by Tim, played by Donald Gleeson, whose side note I love. He's in so many good films. Yeah. Like, so many. For um, people like me who don't know who anyone is, he's, um, he's Bill in Harry Potter. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. He's also in Star Wars. He's in Brooklyn. He's in, he's in so many things. Brooklyn was so good, by the way. Yeah. Anyway. So, yeah, Tim turns 21 and his father, played by Bill Nye, who is also amazing, yeah, uh, reveals to him that all the men in his family have the ability to travel back in time to moments in their own past. So his dad says that he basically just uses that ability to find more time to read, which mm. I can relate <laughs> to wanting to do. <laughs> But Tim decides to use his power to improve his love life. He has a few false starts with family friend Charlotte, played by Margot Robbie, and eventually learns that time travel can't just change someone's mind and make them love you. But soon enough he meets Mary, played by Rachel McAdams, and they fall in love. And what I really enjoy about this film is that it's set up for you to think that the plot will be he meets Mary, he has to keep going back in time to win her over they'll get together in the end. Mm. But that's not how it goes. So that is like the first half of the film, but after that, they're like they're married. Mm. What instead happens is that Tim experiences other kinds of love in his life. Um, and I think this is something Richard Curtis does particularly well, that exploring of like lots of different kinds of love. Mm. And that's just my jam. I love a platonic relationship just as much as a romantic one. Oh, yes. So Tim also learns about like loving his friends, his family, his children. He also learns that messing with time isn't always the best option. Like Sometimes you need to just let the bad things happen. I don't want to say what any of the bad things are because I think with this film in particular, it's quite nice to keep some of the moments a surprise. Mm. But I will say that I cry at this film every time I watch it. <laughs> I don't cry often at films, especially not on the first watch. I normally need to like yep. be expecting the emotional gut yep. punch, but, but I the, did cry. The, the last scene? I did cry. Mm-hmm. So, some other details I like. <laughs> I wanted to shout out the wedding scene. It's in Cornwall, where Tim's family lives, and it's windy and rainy and an absolute shambles. Like They're in a gazebo and it just collapses and everyone's... <laughs> covered in rain but it just looks so fun (laughs) there's a sweet moment where tim asks mary if she would change anything like if they should have had it on like another day when the weather wasn't awful Mm. and like you know that he's ready to go and travel back in time to make it be on to make it be perfect because he wants everything to be perfect for her so it's like really sweet that he wants to do that but she just smiles and says no because it was the perfect day because they got married and they were like with all their friends and family and I think that's a nice message that you get throughout the film, that like not everything needs to be perfect to be good. Mm. Like Life isn't perfect. I like that Bill Nye's character refers to Charles Dickens as being brilliant at gags, <laughs> being this really funny writer, and he reads a quote from Great Expectations to prove his point, which I appreciate because we all know that I like that book. 
And yeah, my last point is the music is incredible. That's another running theme I noticed with all my films I've picked is that I really like the music. Mm. Uh, you've got like The Cure, Nick Cave, Ben Folds. But it's also got some real like throwback British tunes <laughs> in the New Year's Eve party scene. Like it has the sugar babes in it, which Aww. I think is hilarious but so accurate. <laughs> That's so good. What sugar babes song does it have? I can't remember. It's definitely Sugar Babes though, but I can't remember. Amazing. So yeah, that that's about time. It's an incredibly romantic film, but it's about like all different kinds of love with like a little bit of time travel magic. So it's just really good. I always think of it as like the time traveler's wife, but happy. Like yeah, if the time I don't. Tra- I don't like the time traveler's wife. No, I don't wife. like the time traveler's wife either. And I thought when I watched About Time that it was going to be like that. Yeah. And it's just so much better. It's not, but it's it's so like cozy and kind of the same as like Richard Curtis's other films. Like the humor is always quite funny. Like there's a lot of sarcasm or just like funny little lines that seem just so quintessentially British, <laughs> which is just why I enjoy them. So yeah, I love about time. Nice. <laughs> What's your fourth one? My fourth one is Easy A. I almost, yep. Because <laughs> if anyone was going to be on here twice, it was going to be Emma Stone. Yes. So Easy A is my absolute comfort film. I could watch it at any time. Mm-hmm. I could have literally just finished it, and if you came in and were like, do you want to watch Easy A? I'd yeah. be like, yep. Yeah. <laughs> I watched it for the first time after my first big breakup, mm-hmm. and it was the only thing that made me feel better. <laughs> and that is just like my seminal memory of Easy A. I think it's the perfect rom-com, mm-hmm. mainly because the romance is kind of secondary to the plot. Yeah. So for those who don't know, this is a this is a theme for me that I've discovered. It's a retelling of, <laughs> or an adaptation of The Scarlet Letter, but it's set in a modern American high school. It follows the escapades of Olive Pendergast, played by Emma Stone, which is an amazing name, Yes. as she goes from a total nobody to public enemy number one because she lies about having had sex and then when the rumour gets out she starts taking money from boys in exchange for lying that she had sex with them. She does not actually have sex with any of the boys. (laughs) She just says that she does. So basically the purity brigade of her school come after her. Her best friend turns against her. She gets into a big web of lies. She risks losing her chance with the only guy she actually really likes. (laughs) So it's got everything. It's got comedy, it's got tragedy, it's got slut-shaming, and it has a big musical number. So it's got all of the elements that I like. One thing that I love about it is that it's obviously a retelling of The Scarlet Letter, but it's a really self-conscious, meta-textual retelling, because the book that Olive is reading in her English class is The Scarlet Letter. Mm -hmm. And in her inner monologue, which narrates the film, she says... Isn't that always the way the books you study in English class always seem to apply to your own angsty teenage life? Yeah. I say inner monologue. It's not an inner monologue. Yeah, she's saying it. She's saying it yeah. to, as a live stream. Yeah. For reasons which aren't important right now. Then as part of her rebellion against her slut shamey school, Olive begins wearing corsets with a big red A stitched on them at the school for adulterer actively styling herself after Hester Prynne, who is the protagonist of The Scarlet Letter. So it's definitely a film for literature geeks, which makes it not at all surprising that we both like it. Mm -hmm. The third thing that I need to just shout out about this film is the cast. Yeah, so good. Everyone is in this film. (laughs) Stanley Tucci, Mm -hmm. 
Mm. Um, and Patricia Clarkson are all of parents. I love them so much. They absolutely steal the show. I think they're my favourite, like, parents in a film, like, ever. Ever. Same. (laughs) They have all the best lines. Yeah. Like, when, um... One of all his kid, when the kid says I'm adopted, he's like, "Who told you?" <laughs> or um, so for context, uh, Olive has a little brother who is black, so he is adopted, and it's quite clear that he's adopted in this white family. At the end of a whole family conversation, Stanley Tucci turns to the kid and goes, "Where are you originally from again?" Oh, I bet that was ad libbed as well. I know it has to so be so funny. Or perhaps when Olive's friend comes to the door and he says, is there an Olive here? <laughs> the the mum says something like, what is it? There's a whole jar of them in the fridge, honey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, so good. So yeah, the parents are great. Her best friend is played by Ali Mishaka, which is like a weird casting, but mm. she's very good at it. She is very good at it. The, the Jesus freak, that's in quotes, nemesis, is played by Amanda Bynes. Brilliant. Amazing. So good. The shady guidance counsellor is Lisa Kudrow. And her dream guy is, of course, Penn Badgley. Who, you know... Is not creepy in this film. He's not (laughs) creepy in this film. You know him from you and you know him from Gossip Girl, but he's not like that in this film. He's just a wee sweetheart. He's so nice. He's called Woodchuck Todd. (laughs) Yeah. Because he plays the school mascot (laughs) as a woodchuck. Oh, he's so cute. So, yeah, it's a proper star-studied cast. And I think sometimes that can go badly because they all can be battling to outshine Mm, each other. mm -hmm. But that doesn't happen in this film. It's just, like, a really fun, warm film where all the characters get their own chance to shine. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what I mean by, like, it is a rom-com, but it's about so much more than just the romance. Yeah, The romance is just a nice thing that is happening in it. Yeah, it, it's almost like it kind of just ties the ending up the romance. Yeah. But I don't mean that in a bad way, like... But it's, it's more about... It's um, more about her journey, really. Yeah, it's about her getting into this predicament <laughs> of of saying that she's done all these things that, that she hasn't, mm. and then just seeing how that pans out. But yeah, I don't think I'd ever say no to just sticking this one on, so I had to, I had to include it in the yeah, list. Yeah, I do love Easy A as well. I also think it's a really good title for, yeah. like, the pun. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what is your last film? My last one, which, like I said, I was, like, really struggling with what my fifth film was going to be, but I think I've picked a good one. Okay. Scream. Yes! So, I love Scream. So Wes Craven directed this film. It came out in 1996, the year I was born. And it's loosely inspired by the Gainesville Ripper, who's Danny Rowling, who went on like a murder spree, killing five students in 1990. So the film follows a string of murders committed by a masked figure called Ghostface. And these murders are taking place a year after our main character, Sidney Prescott's mother, was killed. Okay. So Sidney, played by Neve Campbell, is being pursued by potentially the same person who killed her mother. And I'm sure most people know this, but I'll explain anyway. Scream is kind of a satire or like a meta look at traditional horror or slasher films. It's a response to films like Halloween, Friday the 13th, even Wes Craven's own films like A Nightmare on Elm Street. And so it both honours the tropes of the genre while also like poking some fun at them or subverting them. So a good example of this is the opening scene. 
It opens with Casey, Drew Barrymore's character, receiving a creepy phone call while home alone, and she's eventually pursued by Ghostface and sees her boyfriend get killed by Ghostface. And then in the first 10 minutes of the film, roughly 10 minutes, she's murdered too. So bear in mind, this is really surprising for an audience in 1996. Drew Barrymore's a big name. The poster is her face. Like, that's all the poster is, is Drew Barrymore's face. She's the natural main character. But Scream subverts this and kills her, which shows that no one in the film, like, big name or not, is safe. Oh. It's just so clever. You also have the infamous rules scene. So at a party that all these teenagers are at, a character called Randy, who's, like, the horror movie expert, breaks down the three main rules of surviving a horror film and of course they are you can't have sex you can't drink or do drugs and you can't say i'll be right back Mm. and obviously all of these things happen in the (laughs) film at some point i've not really spoiled too many things from the films i've discussed today but i am about to reveal the killer of this film so if you've somehow avoided it (laughs) in the past 25 years this is your final warning but yeah i want to talk about how much i love the killer in scream or should I say, killers? Dun 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 dun! dun. It's a good little twist. Because again, bear in mind, this this was very original when it came out. It's a bit of a given now. That, anyway, so from the start of the film, you're made to believe that Billy Loomis, played by Skeet Ulrich, Sydney's boyfriend, is Ghostface. But he has alibis, and he's not there when some of the killings happen. He's even killed by Ghostface in front of Sydney, so you're like thrown off. You're like, okay, it's not him then. But then the twist comes. So, first, Billy isn't dead. It was a fake death. Second, Ghostface is actually two people. It's Billy and his friend Stu, played by Matthew Lillard. I won't go into, like, all of the intricacies of why they killed all these people, but I do actually think it's a really satisfying reveal. Like, the reasoning makes sense. It also makes rewatching the film really great, because when you know this and can look out for it, you can actually tell when it's Billy or Stu when you're seeing Ghostface. Because Stu is way more, like, goofy and chaotic. Like, when you're seeing Ghostface sort of, like, (laughs) falling over and, like, being chucked through windows and all this kind of... Like, that's Stu. Whereas Billy is, like, way more measured. But I don't think you would really pick up on that, like, on first watch. Apart from maybe thinking, like, oh, this isn't possible for one person Mm. to do. So yeah, one of my favourite scenes in the film is Billy and Stu's confession or reveal scene. They both stab each other to set another character up for the fall. But Stu has been injured like a wee bit more <laughs> and he's slowly losing his mind. And Matthew Lillard is just fantastic at playing that role. He has this brilliant line where he yells like, I'm feeling a little woozy here. <laughs> <laughs> and Skeet Ulrich as Billy is just perfection like he's so handsome in like a very dark way but he's an absolute psycho (laughs) (laughs) so yeah i thought i'd shout out a few favorite lines Mm -hmm. um as i really like the dialogue in this film too so one is in that same kind of scene where sydney accuses billy and stew who've just confessed she says like you've been watching too many horror movies and Billy says, Now, said, don't you blame the movies. Movies don't create psychos. Movies make psychos more creative. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lovely, like, meta line from Sydney's friend Tatum, 
who is being pursued by Ghostface, but she thinks it's just someone playing a practical joke. Mm. So Tatum, like, jokes back, please don't kill me, Mr. Ghostface, I want to be in the sequel. (laughs) (laughs) And then another sequel joke comes from Stu, who says, everybody dies but us, we get to carry on and plan the sequel. Because let's face it, baby, these days you got to have a sequel. (laughs) (laughs) And as we all know, the horror genre is filled with sequels and very few of them are actually any any good. They are annoyingly releasing a new Scream soon. Although the trailer looks alright, so I'm thrown off. Hmm. There was a second one, wasn't there? Oh, there's four. Okay, yeah. Yeah, there's there's four, and then this will this will be the fifth one. Spot the um, never watches horror movies. <laughs> one thing I will say that is good about the Scream sequels, because I I like them the less. Do you know what I mean like the the more they go on, the less I like them. Mm. But one thing that is good is their meta jokes about sequels. Mm. Like, there's different rules for the second one. It's like on the sequel, like the kills have to be bloody or like no one's safe. Like, like it, they they do a good joke. Like, yeah, with it's a sequels. good take. Yeah. So yeah, my favorite line in the film is from Billy near the start of the film because it's just I I still I don't get why he says that, but it just makes me laugh every time. He sneaks into Sydney's room and says, I was home watching television. The Exorcist was on. It got me thinking of you. <laughs> no clue what that means. But I think it's hilarious. And that really should have been the indication. <laughs> like, he's a he has psycho. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm like, what, what could that possibly mean? I have no idea. Anyway. So, yeah, that's some of the reasons I love Scream. I'm very picky about what horror films I like, but Scream always wins for me because the kills aren't super outlandish. Like, there are some creative ones. They're just quite gory. It doesn't rely on jump scares, which I like because I just think jump scares are just so lazy. I love that it picks apart its genre while still honouring it, and perhaps that is because it's directed by Wes Craven, who is obviously one of the biggest names in horror, and who really did like help shape the genre since the 70s. So yeah, just a really great horror film, and I recommend watching it if you haven't, somehow, because it's great. Nice! <laughs> What's your last one? So for my last one, I felt like I had to dip into the classics, because I went yeah. on so much about La La Land, about loving the old Hollywood films, mm-hmm. and I probably could have filled a whole episode with old Hollywood films. Yeah, see I've not included any classics, just side note, and... I feel weird about it. Yeah. Because I do love them as well, but they just weren't the ones that came first in my mind. Well, I've gone for another book adaptation and a very basic choice, but it is an old reliable. I've gone for Breakfast at Tiffany's. Yeah. So it's my birthday film. I watch it every year (laughs) and I do that because I think it's perfect. Yeah. Again, the fashion, the cinematography, Audrey Hepburn's whole performance, the music, like you're not going to beat Moon River at the end of Breakfast at Tiffany's. Mm. It's just a perfect film. But weirdly, this is one of the few times where I'd say I actually really like the film better than the book. Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily that the film is better than the book, because the stories are so different and the endings are so different that you can't, you almost can't compare them. But personally, I prefer the story in the film. Yeah, I've not actually read the book. It's happier. The book is obviously sadder because... Oh, always the book is sadder. <laughs> yeah. But it's different. It takes a totally different course. Yeah. 
and obviously this film came out in 1961 so the book is the book by Truman Capote is probably too depressing to be made into a film in 1961 Mm. but because it is a book adaptation a few of the lines are ripped straight out of the book Mm -hmm. and one thing that I adore about this film is the way that Audrey Hepburn delivers the lines so differently to how I read them in my head but Mm -hmm. her delivery seems like the way they should be said. Right, yeah. That's a very niche observation for people that have read the book and seen the film, but (laughs) I would like to know if anyone agrees with that. She gives the prose so much life that it doesn't feel like it was written, and I think that's quite difficult to do. Also, one of the main characters is a cat called Cat. (laughs) Um, And what's not to love about that? Yes. So I thought that that would take me to my favourite line, which is when Audrey Hepburn's character, Holly Golightly, is talking about why she loves Tiffany's, the jewellery store. And she says, The quietness and the proud look of it. Nothing very bad could happen to you there. If I could find a real-life place that'd make me feel like Tiffany's, then I'd buy some furniture and give the cat a name. (laughs) And I just absolutely love that line Mm -hmm. because it's so old Hollywood and glamorous. But it's also so sad. Mm. (laughs) Like, I'd buy some furniture and give the cat a name. (laughs) Because one of the things that everyone loves about Holly Golightly is that she has no furniture. Mm -hmm. Her place is a party apartment. Yeah. And it's very easy to have parties in it because she has no stuff. Because she never stays anywhere for very long. Another thing, this film does really well, in a similar way to Baby Driver, actually, is scenes and sequences. Mm -hmm. So I haven't actually talked a lot about filmmaking and cinematography in this episode, but I feel like Breakfast at Tiffany's makes you really appreciate the artistry of a scene. Mm -hmm. The party scene in Holly's apartment is one of my (laughs) favourites because it's just loads of little vignettes of mad things that happen at a party. So you've got like the cat being put on top of a fridge, (laughs) like someone checking the time on a watch that's strapped to someone else's ankle. (laughs) Uh, You've got a woman who's like kissing a man and then she bends to take a drink and then she comes back up and finds like another man (laughs) there, like a revolving door. You've got like people putting cigarettes it's out on things they just shouldn't they've got someone like dropping a cup and then someone else catches it mm-hmm. it's one of it's like one of those videos that you see that's like the, this is so satisfying where you watch like a marble rolling down uh, a like pure, a Rube Goldberg machine yeah, yeah like a pure obstacle course it's so whimsical um and it's delightful to watch and another sequence that I love that's that's a bit longer in the film is where our protagonists Holly and Fred as the narrator is nicknamed, take turns doing things that they've never done. Mm. So from having champagne for breakfast to finding something at Tiffany's for under $20 to stealing Halloween masks from the little dime shop, they just act like big kids the whole day. And it's one of those sequences that gets more and more ridiculous as it goes on, Mm -hmm. which is just so much fun to watch. But it also has really poignant scenes, like the one at the end, spoiler alert, where Holly tosses the cat out in the rain and then immediately regrets it and goes running out to find him because we love a visual metaphor. Yeah. And it's not light rain either. Like It's not <laughs> yeah. like movie rain. It's like monsoon torrential <laughs> rain. And they're just like, she's like a dripping wee drowned rat. And it's just so emotional to hear her shouting, cat, cat, mm. cat, over the noise of the rain because the cat doesn't have a name. <laughs> Oh, it does me in every time. (laughs) Yeah, my final gush for this film is the outfits. Yeah. Every single one of Audrey Hepburn's looks in this film is amazing. My personal favourite is the very understated 
not ostentatious at all pink Givenchy dress with tiara, pink rhinestone, raindrop earrings and cape. Yep. What I love about that costume in particular is that it appears in the most gut-wrenching scene where Holly finds out that her beloved brother has died in the war and she's wearing this like insane beautiful outfit and then just goes savage into grief and starts like ripping things apart and like crying and screaming. It's just so over dramatic <laughs> and like hyper stylized. I can't get over it. I mm. don't know who visualized that. Yeah. I can't remember if that outfit's described in the book or not, mm. but whoever like designed that scene, <laughs> just I take my hat off to them. <laughs> and also, all of her other looks are nice too. But, yes. But that one is my favorite. <laughs> so that's, I don't have any, I don't have any coherent thoughts about Breakfast for Tiffany's. I'm not explaining the plot because if you don't know the plot, that's not my problem. <laughs> it's, you know, it's like, twice my age so yeah but yeah i definitely recommend it if people are in any way intimidated by like classic cinema it's a really approachable place to start yeah yeah i'd say so um it's really funny and one thing which i sometimes find about old films that puts me off is that they talk so fast that sometimes <laughs> yeah. i genuinely can't understand them that's yeah. not an issue in this film <laughs> Would you like to go on to your honourable mentions? Yeah, so like with our albums, we have 20 honourable mentions. <laughs> um, and yeah, I just, I feel like I've forgotten loads. Like, I feel like the minute this episode goes up, I'm going to realise I've missed like a really like fundamental like favourite. Me too. <laughs> <sighs> but anyway, my first is Sing Street. This is a wildly underrated film. I think it was like, I was torn between this and Scream. Mm. it's about a teenage boy who starts a band to win over a girl it's set in ireland and it's about wanting to like escape that life and make it big in london and it's based off of john carney the writer and director's life and again the songs are great told you there was a theme (laughs) another is billy elliott yep i love films about dancing (laughs) and this film makes me so emotional jamie bell is just brilliant as this little boy who falls in love with ballet instead of boxing and it's set against the backdrop of the minor strike in the northeast of England in the 80s. It's incredible. Like, it's it's just categorically a brilliant film. <laughs> <laughs> Another romance I love is The Age of Adeline. Um, this is about a woman who doesn't age and the difficulty she has hiding that from like a man that she meets and falls in love with. And Harrison Ford's character always makes me cry when I watch it. A musical I love is Rent. I love this film. I love the musical. The actors in it play the parts that they played on Broadway, which doesn't often happen in stage-to-film adaptations, but that's why I think it's really great. And it's just about people being poor in New York, and it also heavily features the AIDS epidemic. I thought I'd list off a few animated ones as well. So I didn't love... The Disney princesses growing up. No, My favourite was actually Anastasia, who's technically 20th Century Fox. It's such a dark film. It has like Russian history mixed with Russian folklore and like amazing songs. Dimitri is beautiful. Anastasia was my favourite Barbie that I had because I had two. I had one with like her peasant clothes and one with her like big yellow ball gown. Aww. 
and I used to have a cassette tape of Once Upon a December, which my family can attest uh, I used to listen to it on a loop, <laughs> like constantly. <laughs> That's so cute. One Disney princess I did like, though, was Rapunzel in Tangled. I adore Tangled. Like, I just realised Tangled's not on my list and I can't believe it's not. <laughs> so I'm jumping on your bandwagon. Yeah. Fucking love Tangled. It's lovely. It's funny. It's emotional. Like, I see the light. It's just... What a song! <laughs> so good! <laughs> and Flynn Rider is babe. Yeah, he is. My Would... favourite Disney... Yeah. My favourite <laughs> Disney film growing up, though, was Hercules. Even though the mythology is wildly inaccurate... I do love all the like Greek mythology jokes. Mm-hmm. Um, Hades is hilarious, and Megara is also a babe. And again, amazing songs. I won't say I'm in love. Is that was one of my fundamental Disney yeah. songs. Same. And go the distance is just like the perfect like motivational <laughs> song. I have to mention Paddington too. It's my favorite of the two Paddington films, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. It's the perfect film. <laughs> I was I thought that would be on your top five, to be honest. No, because I don't like it's still it's quite a recent mm. favorite. I don't know. Yeah, it's like, maybe not molded your entire it, self. No, it's just it's just perfect. <laughs> and my final animated film, because apparently I have a lot of animated favorites, is Coraline. Yeah, obviously, I love Neil Gaiman, <laughs> and this adaptation is just wonderfully creepy. It's about like a girl who longs for a more exciting life a life where her parents like care more about her and she finds that through a hidden door in their new house but even though like everything seems perfect at first it isn't much like Tim Burton's Corpse Bride I like how it shows Coraline's real life is very like muted Mm. and grey and then the other world is really bright and weird and wacky and the other mother is just horrifying she's so creepy so creepy and so is the other world when it all starts to like break down Mm. and nothing like works properly and her dad can't like speak and it's like oh it's horrible and the other mother is voiced by susan from desperate housewives right yeah which is so off-putting yeah because (laughs) her voice is so like like kindly yeah but then and like like, suburban yeah but like when it starts to you know, go a bit off. It's like, well, this is uncanny. Mm. This is she. They do something weird and pitchy to her voice, and it really yeah. freaks me out. Because she already has a bit of like a like a, a gravel. Yeah, I was going to say rasp, but that's not quite right. She already has a bit of like something in her voice, mm. and it's like they've like kicked it off <laughs> somehow. Like, oh, it's horrible. I had to include an eighties John Hughes film, and my favorite is Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yes, Matthew Broderick is just great. It's Ferris. It's so funny. The entire plot is just Ferris bunking off school with his best friend and his girlfriend. But as with like all John Hughes films, it somehow manages to explore lots of really great like themes and have great character arcs, even though it's set in like a day. Yeah. I it, miss films that are set in a day. Yeah, same. And it also just has it has a really great music number because again, guys, I have a type apparently. And Sloan is a babe and she has really good clothes. Yeah, that is true. Oh, I love Sloan's outfit. So her, her jacket is so good. I know. Another rom-com I love is Serendipity. It's about two people who meet and decide to part ways and let fate decide if they should see each other again. And obviously they have so many near misses and obstacles getting in the way. It's set at Christmas in New York. So what's not to love? I don't think I've ever seen that. Oh, you would like it. It's John Cusack. Can we watch that for Christmas? Yes, absolutely. Sweet. (laughs) (laughs) Also, Serendipity is is the name of an ice cream shop 
and it is like an actual place in New York and I really want to go. I remember you telling me like years ago that that was one of your favourite words. It is one of my favourite words. A fateful accident. Hmm. Another romantic comedy drama because that is just like if you know when you're not in a you don't know what mood you're in that's just the genre that I go for. Yeah 100%. And that is Love Rosie. Oh. Um, this is also a film about near misses. Uh, it's about like two friends who've loved each other like forever, but there's always obstacles in the way. I also love that it uses Lily Allen's song Fuck You in such a satisfying way. Yeah, it really does. <laughs> Another favourite is Little Miss Sunshine. Mm. Um, it's a very dark comedy about one of the most dysfunctional families ever who go on a road trip to support the youngest child in the family in a beauty pageant, even though no one wants to go. It's so hilarious, but it's also really emotional. Yeah. I've included a film that's, like, not good, but I love it anyway, and that is The Day After Tomorrow. Okay. To be fair to it, it's an earlier example of a natural disaster movie, and so I think some of the beats are actually really well executed or, like, surprising. Like, when they came out. Right. But now if you'd watch it, you'd be like, yeah, I knew that was going to happen. All I can say is that Jake Gyllenhaal <laughs> covers a world of sense. <laughs> okay, I have a couple more horror picks. First is a newer one, Midsummer. Oh, I was going to actually put that on my list. Yeah, if I listed all the reasons I like it, I'd be here forever. But basically, it's really intricate. It's really clever. I'm in awe of all the like detail and foreshadowing. Florence Pugh is wonderful as the lead, and Jack Rayner as her awful boyfriend is just brilliant in that role. Like I hate him mm. in that role, but I love him because he's a great actor. And yeah, it's just the best breakup movie. <laughs> <laughs> My other horror favorite is Jennifer's Body. Yes, um, I've talked about this film on here before, but. Yeah, I just think it's so underrated and I'm really happy that it seems to be coming back around now. Yeah, we were just talking um, about the Megan Fox renaissance. Yeah, exactly. Because I think that is it. Like, people... Like, Megan Fox is way more public now than she used to be. She used to be quite, like, reclusive. Mm-hmm. So I feel like now that she's, like, back, people are, like, uncovering, like, her... I was going to say discography. That's not the right word. Filmography. I was waiting to say back catalogue, that's the same as <laughs> Yeah. So, like, yeah, I feel like people are rediscovering her films and Jennifer's body is, like, very fitting <laughs> for the current climate. Yes. Um, it's about a girl who gets possessed by a demon and she eats boys. <laughs> I also love... My friend Rhiannon pointed this out the other day, so let me get this right. Mm-hmm. Halsey dated Machine Gun Kelly or Travis... Somebody. I think she dated Travis Barker, Barker. but she's done songs with me. like she's friends with Michelle yeah. and Kelly. Yeah. And anyway, there was a whole intricate look, but basically Halsey has a song that samples the bit of Megan Fox's dialogue from Jennifer's Body. Right. And it's a song called Killing Boys. Uh, and it has the bit that's where she yeah. says, We're not killing people, we're killing boys. <laughs> There's a new song out called I Eat Boys by Chloe something i've forgotten her name I'll, i think i I'll just downloaded it. that the other day actually. yeah and it's it's like the music video is j- is just her in like jennifer's body yeah <laughs> like outfits but that's also inspired by it so here's something you might not be able to tell from what i've picked so far i quite like a film noir every mm. now and then and a really great modern one is the nice guys 
I didn't actually realise that Ryan Gosling was funny <laughs> until I saw this film. And it's my favourite film of his. Like, I, I know you love La La Land, but Ryan Gosling and The Nice Guys. Oh, he's so funny. The plot's kind of hard to describe, um, but it's basically about like two PIs trying to crack two cases that end up becoming really interconnected. Right. But it's it's just really funny. It's by the same director, I've forgotten his name, but it's by the same director as Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which is a really great film as well. Like a same like noir type one. Mm. A teen flick I love is a Cinderella story. Hilary Duff was always like the coolest person to me when I was younger. Yeah. And I also had a really big crush on Chad Michael Murray. <laughs> so like them starring in this modern retelling of Cinderella. It's amazing. I love every plotline of this film. I love Jennifer Coolidge as the evil stepmother. Oh, she's just so good. It's when she looks at her and she's like, you're not very pretty. You're You're not not very very pretty. (laughs) I, when I was younger, like, I love that film now, but me as, like, a very, you know, stringent (laughs) young kid just would get so raging that he couldn't recognise her because it was just oh, that yeah, it's silly rid- it's ridiculous. Laugh. Yeah, it's ridiculous. But, like, and I know that it was meant to be funny, but, like, see, when that came out, I just couldn't cope with it. I was like, <laughs> me as a kid was just like, that doesn't make any sense. I know. No, it doesn't. But, like, you, you just have to go with it. Man. I would not suspend my disbelief for a further 15 years. <laughs> okay, I've got two more. Moulin Rouge. <laughs> yes. It's the most bizarre romp <laughs> of a jukebox musical there are parts that make me cringe. Like, I'm thinking of the Lake of Virgin scene. It's so funny. <laughs> it is so funny. But, oh my god, I love this film. I just relate so hard to Christian and his, like, hopeless romantic self. And lastly, I know I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I had to say it. It's The Muppets Christmas Carol. Hey! Uh, I watch it every year on Christmas Eve with my dad. It's one of his favourites, so his had to become one of mine. And there are loads of Christmas films I enjoy, but like this is the one that when I watch it, I'm like, oh, Christmas is here now. Right. It's just great. It's actually really quite accurate adaptation of the Dickens novella, and then the songs are great, and it's just a good family favourite. It is a good time. <laughs> okay, done. Whew. Whew. What are your 20? <laughs> Woohoo! Okay, crack the knuckles. Here we go. <laughs> So my first honourable mention, I'm not going to go into that much detail about all of mine, but this one I will. It's called Niagara, Niagara. Oh yeah. This is my hidden gem. It stars Robin Tunney, who is in The Craft, and she's also in The Mentalist. She plays a girl with Tourette's named Marcy, who likes to shoplift. One day while shoplifting, she bumps into another thief, and they catch one another. She, they end up talking and she tells him that her dream is to have a certain doll head, like the hairstyling doll heads, mm-hmm. that you can only get in Canada. And so they go on this Bonnie and Clyde type road trip to Canada to get this doll head. But their penchant for thievery gets them in trouble and soon they go from like lifting booze and they end up into a big web of armed robbery and even murder that they have to keep out running. Naturally, it is a romance. (laughs) It's fucking wild. It's totally bizarre. It's got a few really graphic sex scenes just for anyone that needs to be warned. Mm. But it's so, so funny. And I highly recommend it for some, like, indie weirdness. Yeah. I don't know where you would even find it these days because I definitely have it illegally downloaded. I had never heard of it until you showed me it. But I I did quite enjoy it. I don't know why I, like, 
connected with that film so much but mm. I saw it when I was about 15 and I was just like this is the best thing ever. <laughs> yeah. So my other 19 are Lilo and Stitch. Absolutely one of my favourite animated films ever. Almost made it onto the top five. I can't believe that Disney managed to take the bizarre concept of an experiment gone wrong and made it into like the most wholesome adorable emotionally deep film about family Mm. and like the foster care system (laughs) and like adoption yeah and it's all set on hawaii which is obviously like visually stunning i also think that this like fundamentally made my relationship goals (laughs) because nanny and david's relationship in this film the big sister Mm. is so sweet He's just like, she's so stressed all the time trying to find a job so that her sister doesn't get taken away from her. And he's just always trying to ask her out, but she's always busy. And then at the end, when he finally like helps to save the day, she's like, how can I ever repay you? And he's like, oh, you can just go on a date with me. And it's so smooth. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so cute. <laughs> oh, also, I have fully like so much Stitch merchandise in my life. It's unreal. I'm a grown ass woman and I shouldn't have this many things. My dad bought me a Stitch mug like two months ago and mm. I keep it at home now and uh, I prize it. My second, uh, well, my third one even is Sabrina, the Audrey Hepburn film, not the Teenage Witch, although mm-hmm. I do love the Teenage Witch. Mm-hmm. It follows a young girl who is infatuated with her neighbour. She gets sent off to France to kind of get over her infatuation and learn the art of patisserie. She comes back a very refined young lady and the neighbour's brother, played by Humphrey Bogart, falls in love with her. Mm. Mamma Mia, obviously, had to be on there. It's the whole reason that my wardrobe's filled with dungarees. Love it. Love ABBA. Love Meryl Streep. Love Colin Firth. Yes. So much. Yes. Auntie Rosie and Auntie Tanya are <laughs> iconic. <laughs> I could, again, it's kind of like easy. If you ask me, do I want to watch this film? The answer is yes. Yeah, I do love Mamma Mia as well. It's so easy to watch. And plus it's set in Greece, which is one of my favourite places in the world. Yeah, it's just so stunning to look at. You're just like, oh, I want to be there. Yeah, it's luxury. Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone is one of my favourite films ever. I feel like that's one of my Christmas films. Where I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. I don't know why, but it's Christmas when that comes on. Yeah. Um, I love their little tiny squeaky voices. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I think it's the most magical of all the Harry Potter films because obviously it's when you're being introduced to the yeah. world of magic. Yeah, I'd agree. So as much as I love like the whole plot of the rest of them, that one's my favourite one to watch. A random one that I put on here, but that I can never get out of my head since I saw it, is A Simple Favour. Oh yeah. With yeah. Uh, Blake Lively and Anna Kendrick. This went totally underrated and under the radar. I didn't see anyone talk about this when it came out. No, I've not seen it since we went and saw it actually. I'd be keen to watch that again. I've seen it a couple of times since and it's just, it's kind of thriller, kind of mystery. Blake Lively plays this very fashionable mum who rocks up at the school gates and asks Anna Kendrick if she can look after her kid for a little while and then she goes missing. Mm. And it's about Anna Kendrick, who's this very suburbanite mummy blogger, trying to find out where she went. And it's wild. Mm. Um, It's very aesthetically pleasing. Mm -hmm. It is kind of like you or Good Girls or Desperate Housewives in Mm -hmm. that, like, suburbia gone wrong. Yeah. I've got How to Train Your Dragon, because... Oh, I love that one as well. As we speak, a little toothless plushie is sitting right next to me. (laughs) 
I love How to Train Your Dragon. I love the way that they've animated him like a dog. The just everything about it. The dad with the Scottish accent. <laughs> love that. Yeah. I love the idea of a Viking land where dragons are just part of it. Just mm-hmm. everything about it is so sweet and I would watch it anytime. Another childhood favourite is Matilda. Yeah. It's one of my favourite books ever and the film adaptation is amazing. I want to live in Miss Honey's house. That is the <laughs> end of that. Edward Scissorhands, as I mentioned before, is one of my favourite sort of Halloween to Christmas films. Yeah. I love um, Winona Ryder and Johnny Depp in this film. I think it's beautiful. I think yeah. they're beautiful. I love that it's an Avon lady. I know. <laughs> that discovers him. I, w- I hope that people still get that reference in times to come. Oh, they must do, sure. Because I was an Avon lady. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know. It just it makes me feel nostalgic. And yeah. I love the... like I'm We're both suckers for like a, a pastel and a gothic setting yeah. all in one place. Yeah, this is like our two personalities in one film. Yeah. Like, we watched The Addams Family last night. Oh, yeah. Well, Addams Family Values. And, yeah. Yeah. as both of us. The whole time I watch Edward Scissorhands, I'm just going like, oh, oh, oh no. Yeah, because <laughs> like, just, it's just so sweet. Every me. time that he hurts himself, Every it makes Every time he me... cuts his little face and he goes like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> A rom-com classic that I absolutely adore is Pretty Woman. I love all Julia Roberts films, mm-hmm. but this is one of my favourites. Again, the soundtrack's banging. It's got everyone in it. Um, It's like the whole cast of The Princess Diaries is essentially in this film. And it has so many good lines. It's so quotable. Me and my mum quote, lights, lights would be good here. And um, (laughs) big mistake, huge, (laughs) to each other all the time. So I love that. These are no order, as you'll have gathered. Another animated one is Fantastic Mr. Fox. That was almost on mine. Yeah, it's just strange and delightfully Wes Anderson. Yeah. I love the geometry and mm-hmm. all the cinematography. I love the voice acting um yep. in this film. Meryl Streep in particular is mm. a star. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, it's just a really sweet film. Yeah. Um, but also that. really dark. Yeah. But like the original story is really dark anyway. Exactly. It's like it's such a bizarre story. <laughs> but I don't know what possessed. <laughs> no, I don't know. Another rom-com that I'll never stop loving is Clueless. Um, It makes no sense. (laughs) But it's so 90s. Like, early 2000s. Like, our childhood. Also quite an accurate adaptation as well. Yeah. But mostly I just love the clothes picking machine in Clueless. I know. I wish I had that. I can't believe that's not is that a thing now? Surely. There maybe, must be Maybe app. really rich people have that. But then you'd have to have pictures of all your clothes on yeah. you and I just feel like that's a hassle. Yeah. My favourite Christmas Richard Curtis film, Love Actually, Yeah. had to be on there. I watch it every year. I always go into it now expecting to get sick of it and I never do. Yeah, so. exactly. But so. I do keep it for Christmas. Yeah. I don't watch it any other time. So there is that. Another classic that I love is a Marilyn Monroe film, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Mm-hmm. I don't think I need to explain why I like that film. <laughs> I think that if you've ever heard me talk, then it makes perfect sense why yeah, I like Yeah, I think that's film. my favourite Marilyn film. Yeah, I think either that or Some Like It Hot, because I do like Some Like It Hot. I do like Some Like It Hot, but yeah, I think Gentlemen Prefer Blondes is my favourite. I feel like one day we need to be the two from Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. <gasps> yeah. That would be so fun. Get some, like, sequin... Yeah. yeah, 
Another classic that I adore is Sunset Boulevard. I almost had Sunset Boulevard on my list. That was going to be my classic that would have made it on. But... Yeah, that's probably my favourite noir. Again, because it's focused on Hollywood as a yeah. subject. Um, it follows an ageing actress as she sort of goes into breakdown. Yeah. It's just perfect. There's so many amazing nods to the silent era yeah. in it. Like, there's silent era actors in it and they don't speak. It's oh, so oh, good. So like, good. I, yeah, I love Sunset and Boulevard. And the opening of Sunset Boulevard just always takes my breath away when you have yeah. this monologue of the narrator saying, like, laying out the story and then you see his dead body in, floating in the pool. And yeah. that's the beginning of the film. Yeah. And you're just like, well, I'm in it now. <laughs> um, another Wes Anderson one that I love is The Grand Budapest Hotel. Mm. I love the whole cast. Everyone in this cast is amazing. I'm obsessed with not really his older stuff, but like this era of Wes Anderson, mm-hmm. like all the geometry and the lush sets just yeah. is a treat for the eyes. Mm-hmm. And similarly satisfying in a way to like in the way of like Baby Driver, where a lot of it is done on beats of the music. Yeah. Um not not in quite the same dedicated way. Not in quite the same way, but yeah, he do- he does do it in all his films as well. Um, I think about um Isle of Dogs as well, another like, yeah. animated Wes Anderson one. I think he does it in that as well. Yeah. I also love that one. Yeah, it was really good. Another couple of Greta Gerwig ones, Lady Bird. Yeah. There's a lot of Saoirse Ronan on my list, mm. but um, I loved Lady Bird. I think that like it's a very relatable film in a lot of ways. It follows a girl who grows up in a Catholic school. It follows a relationship with her mother. <laughs> Me and my mum get on a lot better than the <laughs> mum and Lady Bird, just, just a disclaimer. But it's a very sweet film about like mother-daughter relationships yeah. and sort of small town attitudes and religion and school. And yeah. I just really like it. And it's the start of Saoirse Ronan and Timothy Chalamet starring together as well, isn't it? Yeah. Like, I feel like they're going to be the next like Kate and Leo. Yeah. Like, they're going to be in things together all the time, and I'm so here for it. Absolutely, because they just work so well together. Yeah. And his his line in that, where she, they, like, have sex, and then he's like, I didn't lose my virginity to you. <laughs> <laughs> he's such an asshole. He's such a dick in that film, but he's so beautiful. <laughs> I also just love her pink hair. Yeah. And I love that she insists on being called Ladybird. And I like that the pink hair doesn't look great. Mm-hmm. Like it look like she's done it herself. Like you don't mean you know that she's done it. Yeah, she, it looks like a teenager like, that has tried to have pink hair. Yeah, but like I, oh I, yeah, it's so good. It's so good. Another Greta Gerwig one that I really love that I've only seen twice, but it just always makes an impression on me is Frances Ha. Mm. I've talked about this on the podcast before. It's a film about like having a best friend, and it makes me really emotional. <laughs> <laughs> so that's moving on. A Christmas film that has made the list that I've only seen last year but I think is stunning is Klaus. It's an animated film and the whole concept is the letters to the North Pole. Oh. Uh, it follows like a postie mm-hmm. and the origin of Santa Claus. So it's like a Scandinavian legend. Right. So it's like there's this old carver that lives in the woods and there's a postman that gets stationed at this outpost that no one really is at. Mm-hmm. And slowly he tries to make the town a bit more connected. Mm-hmm. And he ends up befriending this old craftsman. And the craftsman makes toys for the kids. And then they start writing to, to learn how to write letters. They start writing letters to Klaus. Oh. And that's the beginning of Santa Claus. That's cute. And it's a really, it's quite a sad, like it's not, 
a tragic film but it's quite a sad film it's quite emotional and the animation style is really weird it's almost like wooden nutcrackers Mm, but it's okay. beautiful it's really really pretty i have somehow missed this i did not know that that existed i am um, i think it only came out last year mm. but we should watch it okay and my final one because i had to have a little studio ghibli moment mm. is just my neighbor totoro my favorite spirited away that is also <laughs> but i do love my neighbor totoro as well i just love the big fluffy monster yeah he is cute. He's just really cute. <laughs> that's that's my whole and I like the little dusty guys as well, the little suit. The suit sprites. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're cute. I thought about getting a suit sprite tattoo for a while. Did you? Yeah. Well, maybe one day. The more you know. <laughs> but that's it. <sighs> and cut. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, so that is us this week. If you have any comments or questions, then our email is infatuatedpodcast at outlook.com. We have social media, which is linked in the show notes, along with all the music we mentioned. I think we have mentioned music today, so we'll I'll see what ends up on there. <laughs> also, I was just going to say, let us know if you have any suggestions for other five favourites episodes that we can do. I feel like we can maybe do TV shows now that we've done films. Yeah. Possibly. But yeah, let us know. If there's yeah, let us know specifics. If you want to know. <laughs> if you want to know, yeah, because we've done albums. Mm-hmm. We could do, yeah, we could do TV shows. We could mm-hmm. do, like, I don't know, short stories because we don't really talk about those. True. Um, True. Yeah, I'm sure there's stuff we could do. Yeah, and please rate and review us on your podcast apps because that helps get the podcast out there and we love that <laughs> okie dokie thank you for listening to our quite long quite film long. run <laughs> if you're still here well done <laughs> and we'll see you next time bye bye oh i just hit my mic as it's the bottom. Oh,